Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. My name is Glenn DeGuzman. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I'm coming to you from Livermore, California, the ancestral homelands of the Ohlone people. Today's episode, we're going to be exploring technological shifts and innovative practices in higher education, and I'm really excited to be joined by a panel of administrators and influencers to talk story on technology, its integration into student affairs, and how our profession is understanding and pushing the envelope during this age of digital transformation. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. Our mission is to have our conversation make a contribution to the field of student affairs and a restorative to our profession. We release new episodes every Wednesday, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm super excited to announce Stylus Publishing is, to be, is now a proud sponsor of Student Affairs Now podcast. So please browse their student affairs and diversity and professional development titles at styluspub.com. And you can use a promo code SANOW for 30% off all books and you get free shipping. And you can find them on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter at Stylus Pub. So let's get started and get to know our panel. And I'm going to start um, by asking them, and let's talk some story here, to introduce themselves, share a little bit um, about their professional role, what they do between 8 and 5 p.m., um, or maybe 8 and 8 p.m., and what you'd like to share about your work and interest in general that's tied to today's topic. So let me go ahead and start. And um, Joe, you want to kick us off? Yes. Hello, everyone. My name is Joe Sabado. I, am, I go by he, him, his. I'm the associate CIO for Student Affairs at UC Santa Barbara. Um, I oversee a team of about 65 folks, and we, over, we uh, under my portfolio are uh, student information systems, electronic medical record systems, uh, graduate you know, education uh, kind of systems. So about 180, 180 applications. Um, our mission is to empower student success and enhance transform student experience. And really, that's my my role. I mean. The technology role is just one piece of what I do. Ultimately, my role at the university is to help students succeed. And so in addition to my role as associate CIO, I'm also a first-generation uh, mentor through, and you know, for folks that are wanting to go into you know, student affairs like through the NASP undergraduate fellowship program, um, some folks and you know, some students in the university call me Uncle Tito Joe or Uncle Joe, and that's become the role that I've embraced. Uh, especially, especially with the uh, Filipino American students, and so you know, I've been in, in student affairs and IT since 1996, and I've always believed in the idea of of um, you know being a possibility model, being someone who can help students succeed, and I've done that through technology, and I, more than ever, I think especially in the in the in this age of COVID, you know, I've seen the impact of technology in terms of safety, in terms of student success, and then enhancing student experience. Thanks, Joe. Let's go to Sarah. Yeah, well, hi, everybody. I'm Sarah Gretter. I go by she, her, hers. I am the Associate Director at the Hub for Innovation and Learning and Technology at Michigan State University. I don't have the nice California weather, but it's still nice enough. Uh, but I'm thrilled to be part of this conversation today, so thank you for inviting me. So the Hub is kind of an internal design consultancy unit at Michigan State University. Typically, it means that our group helps uh, campus partners design learning experiences that align 
student success with the needs of our 21st century. So for instance, it means incubating new experiential courses. Uh, we've done wildlife conservation, for instance, taught by interdisciplinary teams of instructors. It means helping faculty lead math reform on campus or building science gallery exhibitions at the intersection of sciences and art. But really in the past few months, uh, working at the hub has meant supporting faculty and units on campus, rethink teaching, learning and working uh, in online and hybrid models. Um, so we're putting together workshops around educational technologies for professional development on campus, but also helping different units, including our student affair units, um, thinking about design strategy for events like new faculty orientation, fall welcome, in order to provide students with learning experiences that are adapting to the current situation. Um, we are interested at the hub, particularly in access and uh, use of technology issues for students, of course, for faculty and staff as well. But this sudden move to remote teaching and learning a few months ago has uh, opened our eyes even more uh, to systemic discrimination that we have in education, health and justice systems in the US in general. And we've had to acknowledge that our educational practices carry both privilege and oppression, and it is becoming increasingly critical for us uh, and for all of us on all different campuses on, in the US to ensure that equity and social justice are really core elements of how we design experiences for others, especially in a moment uh, in history, really where the digital divide is at the forefront of everything that we do. Thank you, Sarah. Looking forward to you on this panel. And to our final panelist, Kristen. Hey everybody, um, I'm Kristen Abel, I use she, her, hers pronouns. Um, I'm the Interim Director for Communications at, for Student Affairs at Virginia Tech University. Um, and I have a history in, in Student Affairs. I've been a Housing Director, I've worked in Women's Centers, um, and I've worked in uh, Academic Advising as well. And so I've kind of been all around uh, the house. Um, and have gotten a chance to, to work on technology in each of those areas. I actually transitioned over to communications um, from housing uh, several years ago, which was a weird leap for um, a lot of people to see me make, but um, it was a chance for me to kind of indulge my uh, geek side, as I like to, to think of it, where I learned web development um, and became a, a web developer at that time. And so, um, it's really been uh, useful in communications to have all of that student affairs background. Um, and uh, I also do a side project. Uh, this is not my eight to five, uh, but it is influenced by my eight to five, which is the committed project. It's a mental health resource for um, higher education professionals. So that's my uh, unpaid side hustle is what I like to call it. Um, I, unpaid side hustles are wonderful. <laughs> so definitely looking forward to your um, contributions as well on this panel. So let's start with understanding the higher education landscape when it comes to technology integration. Um, Joe, you know, as the associate CIO of Student Affairs, can you share how are campuses engaging in technological shifts, particularly in student affairs? And what, what is shifting and why is understanding this change important? Sure, you know, and that's a very complex question that, that you asked, Glenn, because you know, certainly COVID is the, the most prominent you know, you know, reality that we have today. And so our operations was, is within the context of COVID-19. The way I look at it, you know, we can look at COVID-19 as it is, but I want to look at the bigger history of, of technology and student affairs and how digital transformation fits into that. 
So the way I look at it, COVID-19 is more of a business continuity uh, uh, you know, program in business and disaster recovery. I think more than it's not, it's not normal for, for many institutions. As a matter of fact, if, uh, beginning, I think in the March or even up to now, if you were to say we're doing online education, I think faculty would resist that term because there's, there's this online education means there's a pedagogical you know, uh, context that's designed to that, there's preparation. Really, it was more of remote instruction. And I think we have to identify it as that. You know, it's not the normal, you know, for, especially for residential, um, you know, institutions, going from that on-premise uh, learning, teaching, and then residential housing, uh, all the way down to hybridize and online, that's, the no that's not the norm. So I think, you know, for those who have invested in resiliency, the infrastructure, having the culture of the possibility of a hybridized uh, online education, I think those institutions are probably in a better situation than those who resisted that, that reality or the potential reality. So there's a term that's come up recently, I think the last couple of years through EDUCAUSE called digital transformation. And so in the, depending on the, there are, there's many, you know, thousands of institutions across the United States. And so I think some institutions are engaging in digital transformation at different levels. So digital transformation in the end of it all is this cultural, political, and you know, social shift in, in the institution. But it's like a step function, right? So what we're seeing now is there are institutions who are digit, you know, digitizing their online analog processes because of you know, they, students or staff can no longer walk from one place to the other physically. You know, and some institutions are now optimizing those digital processes. And so some are, are mature enough to be able to say, how do we transform our value proposition into the way we engage our campus from student service, learning and teaching, research, you know, at a higher level. So I think, you know, there's institutions that are engaging in digital transformation at different levels. But as I mentioned, COVID-19 is the most, you know, the reality of today. But I also want to remind people that in student affairs, technology is not a new thing. You know, I mean, I think Kevin Guidry, uh, I think his website's mistakinggoals.com, has reminded us that technology has been a part of student affairs, you know, as early as, documented as early as 1928. You know, and, and one of the... Um, earlier conferences there talk about the, the issue of, you know, how do we not lose our personalities in the context of machines, right? So even way back then and throughout the decades, you know, we, um, student fairs have adopted different technologies, you know, even punch card, even to us like punch card, that's technology. Yes, it is. It was a new technology at that point in time. It's innovative, um, you know, from mainframe to, you know, looking back at social media, web, you know, those kind of things and emails. And every time those technology has been introduced in our history, there's been, you know, the resistance, there's been like, well, how, why do we want to use this? How can we use it for? So the conversation has shifted to, yes, technology has been a big part of our student affairs all those years, almost a, a century. But recently, I think it's been the focus of how do we use this intentionally, right? And it's tied to the idea of student success. And so 2012, I believe it was, it was one of the two major student affairs organizations, ACPA and NASPA started looking at technology uh, as part of the competency the professional competency. And it started with the idea that technology is a thread, you know, that crosses all lines. But I think there was a push recognition that technology should be beyond that. And I think that's what professionals started engaging this idea of how do we develop competency so that we can be more intentional, you know, in terms of, of serving our students and meeting their student success as how they define it to be. So I think the idea now is, you know, yes, we're in COVID-19 and I think it's a bit of business you know, continuity program uh, mindset, but how do we think about strategically what happens after COVID? 
because again, I think COVID is a, is a, is a you know, it's the spot right now. But if you look at the longer history of student affairs in higher ed, you know, it, it's long. And I think there's, you know, there's future ahead of us beyond COVID. So thinking strategically, I think is that's where we want to be. Thanks, Joe. You know, you speak to the intentionality, and I think that there are many universities and colleges that are embracing this, this shift and change. And I think the intentionality um, has become prominent in, in our profession. And I think I want to shift now to Sarah, because Sarah, you are part of something that I think is tied to that intentionality. It's this, the, at Michigan State University, the hub of innovation in learning and technology. Uh, in our, in our conversations prior, you, you, you directly provide consultation on a variety of online solutions for, mm-hmm. for lots of folks on campus. Can you tell me more about your department and what student affairs uh, staff, faculty, and students are looking for? Yeah, so the hub is, if you will, a little bit like the hub of a car. It's the glue that really connects the axle to the tires. That's just the extent of my uh, mechanics knowledge, so I'll, I'll keep it at that. <laughs> but what's important there is that uh, when when we design or redesign learning experiences on campus, we help connect units and people who on a very large and decentralized campus might not ever be talking to each other. That was pre and, po- and during and post COVID, right? Uh, and so we help design the, the conversations that help move the work forward. Um, our design consultation work in the past six months has been highly collaborative because of that. We've had to break silos and find allies in a way that we never had to before. And obviously we could not have done this um, and the work that we do at the hub without our IT partners, without college teams, without the faculty champions and the mentors that we have. So it's truly been a team effort to stay student-centered while at the same time helping faculty and staff uh, navigate new circumstances. When we worked with student affairs this summer and helping them rethink their fall welcome, uh, we did so strategically. And so I'm gonna give one of those examples of how we function as, as a hub on campus. So we did so strategically in coordination with the grad school, with our academic, academic advancement network, who were each also planning for new grad student, new faculty and new staff and admin orientation. And we also took lessons learned from our consult with the undergrad new student orientation that had been planned earlier, keeping in mind that those units would never have interacted with each other previously. Um, And because we wanted to make this a concerted effort, uh, not only to just align intentions and best practices, but also to share ideas amongst the group and make sure that we're we're not replicating content and processes that were already done with staff that were already stretched in time and capacity. Uh, We wanted this to to be efficient. So we needed that conversation to happen so that those units were not um, doing work that was already happened. So this extended conversation really helped us identify, for instance, that we had three main patterns and what we were looking for in all those groups. We needed a need to share, there was a need to share information. There was a need for in-person connectivity, however that looked like, and then we needed a type of resource there. Those were patterns that we noticed across all of those ty- that type of work and that student affairs could really benefit from because we were already doing that work. So connecting them with other groups really helped. And we use this pattern to guide all those different groups through the planning of that work. And in that sense, the hub helped provide the strategy, the strategic planning around, around this. With student affairs specifically, what quickly became evident for us uh, was the need to create a sense of belonging, obviously, for new and returning students without the physical space to do so. So we had to help the student affairs team map out uh, their past events for Welcome Week. 
we decided on the most relevant ones with the caveat and almost a sense of loss or grief, right? That those events would not be the same and they were not translatable directly onto online spaces. And in this case, we pushed for social media campaigns and communications as asynchronous connectivity between people. And we emphasized the, the importance of meeting students where they were. So we had to do this work with the group uh, to communicate with students, to do research with students, embed them in that planning, ask questions, check social media to get a sense of their struggles and their needs in order to address them in that planning. This year was obviously a Band-Aid approach, um, but I think we learned a lot and I hope that we continue uh, in this trajectory. Sarah, that response actually is a perfect segue uh, to this question that I wanna direct to Kristen. Uh, Sarah spoke to belonging and, and being able to collaborate and connect and communication is the center of that. And I know, Kristen, you've worked in a variety of student affairs functional areas what are you seeing from that communication perspective to help us advance and how we do this work? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I want to hire Sarah and bring her and have her help us as well. Um, so that was really cool to hear what y'all are doing. Um, you know, I think that uh, you mentioned social media and that's been a big one. That's how we are communicating, not just with students, but with parents as well. Um, that's been a huge uh, tool for us. Sometimes really great and really helpful. Sometimes it's frustrating because we get um, a lot of negative feedback that way too. So, but I, I think it's really important. And one of the things that has become even more important with social media is understanding which audience we're speaking to where, um, you know, and that continues, you continue to have to educate um, our colleagues about that all the time that, you know, if you're talking on Facebook, you're talking to parents. If you're talking on Instagram, you're talking to students or TikTok or Snapchat, you know, that those are, you're not going to be talking to students on Facebook, right? That's not where they're at. So like we, there's a constant need to, to educate about that um, as well as what, what does that look like? It's not just promotional. You're actually engaging in a conversation. Um, I think some of the other tools that I've seen really um, people latch onto, you know, email of course is essential, um, but it's also overwhelming at this point because things that you would have said in passing to somebody are now an email. Um, I constantly tell people, you either get me in a meeting or you get me to respond to an email. I cannot do both at this point. Um, and so having communications channel tools like Slack, uh, Microsoft Teams, GroupMe, those have become really useful, um, especially when we're doing so much of the planning around how things are going to look different or trying to get out of particular communication within a certain amount of time or whatever that looks like. I think that those have been essential and they've helped people manage the more urgent communication um, versus an email communication that may take a little bit longer to respond to. Um, I know, you know, one of the things that I talk about with my team is there's times when I'm out of the office and you can slack me still, but there's also times when I'm out of the office that I'm not going to check anything and that becomes a text, you know, so like I, I have like different like levels of communication that I offer to people based on how out of the office I need to be. Um, and of course, I'm pretty much always out of the office right now, but um, online or not online. Um, and then of course, I think there's, there's video, which has um, pros and cons. Um, you know, I, I have people that I'm in meetings with that never have their video on. And I, that makes me a little sad. I totally understand. It makes me a little sad just because I want to connect with them. Um, but I totally understand it too. Um, and I find that I have 
I have to build myself up to be in certain meetings. Uh, and if I don't have that time to prep for that meeting, it can really be draining for me. Um, I also happen to be somebody, uh, Joe probably knows this about me. I happen to be somebody that shows pretty much whatever I'm thinking on my face. And when all they can see is your face, that, that can be very challenging. So uh, it takes a lot of work and a lot of energy to ma manage my face um, during those meetings. Um, I think one of the, the biggest challenges that we've seen in this area when we're talking about like online tools, um, the, and granted some of this because of COVID has become more of a rapid um, shift, is just adjusting what we're doing. We've all learned how to work in person for the most part in higher ed. Um, and so it's been really challenging for some people to adjust that. I think it's been really positive too for some people. I'm, I'm an introvert. So having, a, having time to like write something instead of have a phone call about it or a face-to-face um, -face meeting about it, I sometimes love that. Um, I was actually talking with somebody earlier about how I, I really hate talking on the phone, but I will, I'll text you all day if you need me to. Um, but yeah, I think having some of that has been really great because it's caused us to be a little bit more thoughtful about how we communicate. Um, and it allows some of those people that maybe wouldn't have engaged previously. So like I've seen in my Zoom meetings, I have some introverts on my staff who wouldn't talk that much in our staff meetings, but will chat all day long. And so I get to hear from those folks um, a little bit more now. So I think that there's the, there's some been some advantages to almost really like forcing student affairs and forcing higher ed to go digital. You know, and, and it's interesting because I know that even before, um, COVID, we've always talked about shifting, um, shifting the integration of technology and how does that um, impact in-person communication or in-person services. And, and now the conversation during COVID has been once we're out of it, hopefully in, in the near future, do we, um, is there now a hybrid way of doing in-person versus online and whether it's communication tools or systems. And so I've seen uh, many student services move to tools and systems online and they're and they're using these new hybrid approaches or going to continue using these hybrid approaches. Uh, in fact, I think in preparation for this, um, I read about a university in Australia that's leveraging um, artificial intelligence, cognitive systems that are allowing students to access information now 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365, uh, 365 days, all year round. And information's ranging from admissions, to class information, to even how, um, even just specific student engagement um, inquiries. What does this mean? Uh, I'm curious, what does this mean for traditional in-person student support services in the future? Uh, Sarah? Yeah, so I think that it has a lot of implications beyond even student services in higher education, and it's a trend that we should keep an eye on. So I'm glad that you mentioned that example, but th there of course are ethical and equity concerns about some of those tools and we should be mindful and critical about their applications i want to make my myself really clear there but and it does not replace in-person connection but i do think that there are strong benefits particularly when it comes to attracting and retaining students uh, we're seeing a race uh, in admission processes for instance because of the current circumstances where students are going to choose whether they're online or in-person programs based on how quickly they can get accepted and how quickly they can get uh, answers to those questions that they might have. So that's one very small example where advances in technology and AI can make a difference. And again, it doesn't replace the human connection, but in our current circumstances, that's something that might push a student and their decision-making process um, 
around the overall experience of an institution or a program because that experience starts early on before even being admitted. I'm glad to hear that. Joe, did you want to add to that? I think we often frame this technology versus, you know, uh, on campus as that, a duality. It's like, you know, it's like this or that, high touch high, versus high tech. I, I, let me offer a different perspective on that. I think there's an end. I think we talk about the, you know, um, I think it, vice chancellor or vice provost for UC Irvine, Michael Denham talked about this in one of the uh, interviews that he had, says they have about 30,000 students. They have 30,000 unique student experience. And each of those students will have their own definition of student success. So as we face the, the reality of, you know, uh, tightening the budget and maybe constraints ahead of us, I would offer the suggestion that maybe there are things that the technology, like Sarah said, can, can do for efficiency and, and, you know, quick responses to complement those things that we need to do in person. Um, so I think there's a, there's a third, way, third way of looking at this. I think we often you know, do this high tech versus high tech. I think there is uh, another option, which is how do we complement those technologies so that we can be more efficient, but also take care of the, the specific needs of the students. So certainly self-service is a big part of that, you know, and, and, and getting the information right away. And I think Sarah, one of the things I love about this panel, I think we, is we all care about social justice and equity. And I think to me, that's the core of the work that we do, you know, in terms of, and I think COVID-19 has, has, highlighted the need for to be equitable, um, talk about like the, you know, the, the differences in the demographics and the differences that they have. So I think we have to keep that in the, you know, in the mindset of folks. So as Sarah mentioned, there are you know, constraints and, and opportunities for that. But I think I would offer that there's a third way of looking at this, is how do we complement you know, the work that we do in person online um, and not just like this or that. So, so you're, you're actually going into this uh, it's a perfect, perfect example or segue to the challenges. You know, um, Kristen, obviously COVID has pushed campuses to expedite technology integration, uh, going high touch, uh, um, high tech. What are some of the unexpected challenges or unintended consequences that you have seen as campuses have pivoted from in-person to online? Yeah, I think one of the, and I won't, don't know that it's unexpected, but um, definitely unintended. Um, one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing for both students and staff, I think, is that isolation factor. Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, we talk about how technology allows us to be more connected, and I absolutely 100% believe it does. Um, I have friends all over the nation because of technology, and I love that. Um, but there's also challenges to how we present ourselves online or virtually, as opposed to just being uh, with other people, right? And I use that language about presenting ourselves very intentionally because I do think there's a presentation aspect to it. Um, we do put forward a different um, aspect of our personality or ourselves when we're online or when we're virtual. You know, you, talk, you see a lot of um, folks talking about the social, me social media and how we represent ourselves on social media and you only get like this very small glimpse and I don't know if y'all have seen some of the memes with like the Instagram picture and it's got the perfect picture and then you look behind it and like it's just a hot mess behind it right um, and I think some of that happens here as well where we're very much like styling and um, making sure that people see what we want them to see um, of what we're doing and so it's it's that turning off our cameras or putting our game face on or, or whatever. 
Um, and I think one of the other challenges, at least from the staff side of things, but I suspect our students are feeling this too. Um, in higher ed, we've, we've long struggled with that balance between work and life, right? And technology, we know for a while has been making that even harder. People are always, you know, able to get to their email now because it's on their phone or, or whatever that is. I think being at home makes it even harder to separate that. So like, when am I at work and when am I at home if my laptop is always here um, or if I'm, if I'm always working? Um, so I think it's been really hard to set those boundaries. And it's something that even when we set them, we have to consistently over time re-emphasize them and reset them over and over and over again. Um, and I think that can be really, really challenging uh, for folks. And, and I think, like I said, I think that's going to happen with our students too. When our, so much of our programming happens in the same format as our classes are delivered, um, it can be really, really frustrating for a student to even want to engage with that. Um, but also just in general, like if they do, when, does, when do they separate their work time from when they're supposed to be kind of having downtime or relaxing? Uh, Joe, you spoke to some of the uh, inequities, social justice inequities, and you've worked with many first-generation students. You identified yourself as one at the beginning, um, and um, there's been an impact on our BIPOC communities. Uh, how have these shifts impacted these communities? Yeah, I appreciate, uh, I mentioned earlier, I appreciate the, the, the context of the social justice inequity in our conversation today, because as you said, I, I do work with many students uh, on campus and you know other other campuses. But I think mental health is certainly one of those things that that we deal with. I think you know Kristen talked about that. Um, it's not like COVID nineteen is the only thing that's going on, right? So I mean, there's racial uh, unrest, political unrest, financial insecurities. You know, those are things that I, I think are contributing to the mental health. And actually, even Kristen talked about this, the presentation, you know, for ourselves online. I think you know. Studies after studies after studies have, have shown that social media, if not used, you know, in, in, in appropriate ways, can lead to mental health issues because of, again, the comparing yourself to other people um, and, and being online performing all the time. So that's one. I think it's hard enough as it is as a first generation to navigate the university physically. And, and even if we provide a roadmap, you know, it's hard to do that. It's even harder um, for first gen, I think, and the folks in this in this communities to navigate university in 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 a, in a virtual way, and I will I will own up to the fact that I think our systems are so um, not designed well. You know how many time how many websites have have students needed to navigate before they even admit you know at the point of admissions. I think you can count if you look if you do like a student journey map, you can count the number of websites that present themselves differently. Uh, different, maybe conflicting information, barrage of communications. You know, those are things that I think are inhibitor, inhibitors to success, as opposed to ones that promote success. Um, sense of belonging. I think someone mentioned there earlier, sense of belonging is a big part, especially now when your identity is just based on Zoom, right, in, in classroom. And so, you know, I think in our university, what, I mean, we did a survey, I think it was Springwater, and that's one of the things that came up is, you know, how do we promote the sense of community building within the classroom? And I think sense of belonging came out, you know, was, was one of the things that, you know, we promote. As a matter of fact, one of my projects right now that, that I'm working on is the um, preferred pronouns and, and names, for names, because again, that's how we see each other now, students, how they present themselves. And so mis being misgendered, being, you know, uh, wrong, wrong names, those really impact mental health and our identity. So even things that we don't think about, those 
little things matter, you know, to, to our, you know, to, to our students and our staff. Of course, the last piece is financially, right? I think, I think for many of our students who one work on campus, they don't have the opportunity anymore, you know, for the most part. Um, family expectation is a different one. I think Kristen talked about when do you separate the, you know, the work from, from home for our students, you know, especially first gens who, you know, whose parents don't, don't have the sense of like how much it takes to, to study. There's certain expectation, you're at home now, so help me babysit or help me do the chores. And I've heard um, personally from some of our students that like they can only study after hours, right? Because the parents are expecting them to, to help out with the chores. And lastly, I think even, you know, I was, I was in a FaceTime with my, my sister-in-law yesterday and one of them, you know, one of her kids is a college student. And then another one is an elementary school student. And I, it reminded me, it's like, we're lucky, we're privileged to have different spaces. Like, can you imagine families with a studio or an apartment that have, you know, five or six family members? And I'm watching my, you know, my 13-year-old um, nephew doing like a Zoom exercise, you know, exercise in front of Zoom. Can you imagine like having like a studio with maybe three or four kids studying? I don't know how that works. And so, you know, it, it, it's, it's really heartbreaking to, to think about those things, you know, so as we, I think as we design our systems, as we design the way we provide services, we have to be mindful about the impact of the, you know, of the way we do things to students and their families. Those are some very insightful thoughts and reflections, Joe. Kristen, did you want to add to Joe's comments? Yeah, I mean, I think all of that is, all of that is so important for us to keep in mind. The other thing that, that has really been interesting for me to, to learn with our first gen students um, is the fact that they have no experience of what college looks like yes. pre-COVID. Yes. Um, and so we've had some really great stories from students who were like, yes, virtual orientation was awesome because they never went, knew what orientation was like before that, right? Um, it's, you know, it reminds me, my son is a freshman in high school uh, this year and he's doing virtual schooling and he loves it but he has no interest in going into the building ever. So, you know, it's just, it is interesting how this is also setting kind of an expectation, like we're gonna have to do some additional education and orientation once we go back in person, if that's what we go to for these first generation students as well. Yeah, I'll also add um, other outlier communities or marginalized international students. Just, there's just an array of different uh, uh, populations that are just truly definitely impacted by this, um, by this and the inequities that exist. Kristen, I want to stay with you um, with this next question. Campuses are challenged to create co-curricular experiences um, that align with public health guidelines. What are the challenges and issues uh, that you are seeing yeah, um, this has been huge. This has been, I think we've had a meeting about this at least once a week since the beginning of the semester, if not before, trying to figure out how do we provide an experience for students who are actually on campus. So we're in a, currently at Virginia Tech, we're in a, a hybrid model. So we have um, some, most of our students are, have some class on campus um, in person. Uh, for, for the semester. And so um, one of the things that we've noticed, and we have a very active parents Facebook group, one of the things that we keep hearing is um, comments from parents that, you know, there's not enough for students to do. They're stuck in their rooms. 
Um, and we need to, you know, the university needs to do more to, to provide activities for these students. And then when we provide activities, we get the feedback that why, do, why are you having students gather in person that's not safe. So um, there's a little bit of, uh, we can't quite do anything right, but we're trying. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a lot of challenge too with the fact that we plan these activities and students don't come because actually they're not doing as bad as their parents think they are or they're not interested in that particular activity. I think there's probably a number of reasons that they're not coming um, or they're scared too. They don't want to be around that many people. I think that we often kind of glaze over the fact that we do have students with some serious health concerns that are scared by this, this virus. So um, I think there's been so many challenges. Like I said, we've been meeting regularly to talk about how do we do more in-person programming? How do we do more in-person programming with less staff who are in-person because we also have staff with health, health concerns? Um, one of the things that we've been starting to push at, at Virginia Tech that I just um, think has some potential is this concept of a pod. I don't know if y'all have heard about this or if other places are using it, but this idea that we have like maybe 10, 12 students who have committed to each other that they're gonna follow uh, safety standards so that they're safe with each other um, and being in a smaller group and being in a, a room even or you know whatever in a smaller space um, because they are not going out and you know hanging out with other people and not not wearing their mask or whatever um, and so we've been really trying to push that but even that has its challenges because we have first-year students who have not found people that they want to be in a pod with or don't know enough about how to meet people because they've been hanging out in the room. So I think it's, it's, it's going to continue to be a challenge and it's going to be something that we continue um, to work on. I also think some of this is pretty typical of a, a college um, in the fall, right? But students are experiencing a lot. We, we are always going to have students that struggle to meet other people or to get engaged on campus. Um, this is just slightly exacerbated by the, the current uh, situation we're in. I feel like you're eavesdropping in the conversations we're having at UC Berkeley as well. So you, those challenges very much are real also on our, this side of the coast. Joe, you wanted to add. It's complementary to what, what Kristen said, you know, the, the um, engagement community building. I was talking with a student leader the other day and it's, you talk about how the university provides a lot of uh, you know, virtual events. And he goes, well, but, you know, teacher Joe again. Teacher Joe's like, yeah, but those are on Zoom, you know, and, and we don't want to have to like, we're on Zoom already for many hours. Right? We don't want to be on Zoom, you know, and we go there just if we want to check out a LinkedIn workshop. But it's like a forced interaction, right? So you, you hear about Zoom fatigue. You don't even hear about Discord fatigue. Right? It is a sense of like the performative, and as, as Kristen said, it's like you have to perform in front of, uh, you know, Zoom, in front of your, your professors. So it's like they themselves are experiencing this, you know, how do we, how do we build a community? And one of the things that came out of that conversation is the sense of how do you, how do you create the sense of serendipity, right? Like the moments of serendipity, because this is where you meet friends. It's not during the meetings, it's not during the events. It's before the event where you're hanging out, you know, in front of the yard, the yard and say, by the way, Joe, this is blah, blah, or after the meetings. So that to me, you know, so we thought about that's like, that's the part that's missing, right? Is those, those moments of serendipity and, you know, how do you create those? You can't create those on Zoom when like everyone's like, okay, folks, we're ready to move. We're ready to meet. And everyone's like this. And half the, half the people are probably have the videos off. 
And how do you recognize folks saying, oh, by the way, this is Maria from, you know, Santa Cruz. You know, it's like, and you have like 100 people staring at you or half of them don't have the videos on. <laughs> so, so that's the challenge that they pose is like, first of all, yes, we, we, as a university, we do a lot of events. As a matter of a lot of events. But for students, like, God, it's another one of those, you know, university functions, you know, do we need to? First of all, it's not cool, you know. <laughs> Secondly, we have our space. So that's, that's the insight that I, that I think complements what, what Kristen just said. You know, we're trying our best, but it's, it's, not, it's never going to be enough. You know? So Joe, what advice would you give to student affairs practitioners when they're trying to be innovative with technology tools and resources? These serendipitous oh, moments. You know what? I have said this from the very beginning. Talk with your students. I learn a lot. I, I don't buy the, this mindset as administrators. We don't have time for our students. I call BS on that. Because if, if we're not working with our students, we're not meeting with our students, how are we supposed to serve our students? They know, forget about tradition. And my, Michael Sorrell said that. He's like, we're not here for tradition. We're here to serve our students of today. So to me, it's like, who are your experts? Have conversation with students. We're serving them. Thank you, Joe. So I'm going to pivot a little bit, and we're going to have a little fun here. And... Um, and and I, gave, I did give the panel a heads up on this question in advance. So it's sort of a, but I think it's kind of a fun one is um, it's regarding your favorite app on your mobile phone that you feel every student affairs practitioner or college student should have. So your choice, but um, I will start with Sarah. Well, um, not in a professional setting, but I have a, uh, I'm a recent uh, user of TikTok. And so finally catching up on the trend, but it's really got me uh, almost addicted. So I would recommend it though, because it does provide kind of a, a light comic relief at the end of the day. And I think we all need that. It also in a weird way does increase that human connection that we're missing because you see real people uh, yeah. in comparison to what Kristen and Joe, you've been mentioning the, you know, what you see within this Zoom uh, frame or framework, you, you tend to see the opposite on TikTok, like the reality of, you know what, if you looked uh, a little bit under, you might see that I'm maybe, or maybe not wearing sweatpants. You might see, you know, that I have a, a, a stack of snacks next to you because I've been stress eating, that I have a teenager upstairs and a toddler downstairs. Right, like the, the reality and the connection that we need, I think that's been, um, I, I'm finding this uh, in using TikTok lately. That's Not my awesome. proudest moment, but it's awesome. been fun. <laughs> that's awesome, sir. I was gonna say, I too am a new user of TikTok. I actually went through an orientation with my daughter about a month ago. So I'm with you on that one. Kristen, what's, what app do you recommend? Um, well, so I'm a big fan of puzzle games. Um, and the reason I say games, so, I don't ever play this during meetings. Uh, no, sometimes I play it during meetings. Um, so I have a hard time focusing like on one thing at a time, right? And so a lot of times I'll be checking my email or whatever, and then I don't hear what's going on. Um, but if I'm doing a puzzle game or something, I'm still listening to what's going on, but I'm allowing my, my brain, you know, like it's, it gives me just enough busy to still engage in the conversation, still be focused but also like keep that part of my brain that's like slightly bored by whatever is going on that's not relevant to me um, engaged. So I've been playing Two Dots. That's my um, yeah, favorite puzzle game of the moment. So um, yeah, I like to have that. If I'm not playing on my phone, a lot of times I'm cross-stitching during meetings actually because it helps me 
I, I joke a little bit, but it's sort of true. Like if I'm stabbing the fabric with a needle, I'm not stabbing somebody else. So that's better than my stress eating. So that's, that's, yeah. good. that's good, good tip. That's awesome to hear. Because oh, I've seen that. I've seen that in meetings and just to know that you're doing that behind a Zoom screen is pretty cool too. Um, and definitely, um, this is, uh, it's almost like games on apps are the 21st century version of doodling, right? From back in the day. Yeah. So, Joe. Oh, I, I got a lot of them. But um, one, it's a, let me t- I'll tell you two. One, is, yeah, I love TikTok. Um, I have Pokemon Go, because that, that, you know, I think Glenn and I and I think Kristen, we're all Pokemon players. And I don't know, Sarah, if you are, but, you know, it allows me to go outside. Um, but Boomerang. That's been like a good thing for me. Uh, it, Boomerang a lot is, is an add-on to, uh, to emails and it allows you to turn off or not even get emails. And you can say, you know, um, I, you can give an announcement too, like, you know, a response to whoever is sending an email with exceptions. Um, you know, there's an exceptions list. But I love Boomerang for a couple of reasons. One is giving me this sense of like separation. You know, Kristen talked about last time about, you know, when, when are you really off? And for me, it's important to, for, for myself to, to disengage um, and also to model that the behavior that I want my staff to see, which is to say, yes, I'm busy. I know you, I'm one of the busiest people on campus probably, you know, we're all busy, but to say, yes, I don't have to work, at, you know, at, at evenings or weekends. I'm modeling that to my staff. And so for people to say, it's impossible, it's impossible to disconnect, I've done it. And again, I, mean, I think I do a lot of work, but I think it's important for us to, to show that downtime is necessary. Cognitive, cognitive overload, that's too much. Thanks, Joe. How about you, Glenn? What's, what's on your phone? <laughs> yeah, what's your favorite? <laughs> oh my goodness, I think that you hit it, it's Pokemon Go. I think that um, similarly, I need something to kind of take a break. Um, and there have been times when um, I don't have a lot and, and it forces me to get outside a little bit, even if it's just going outside my front door and walking on my front lawn to get my, my kilometers. <laughs> yes. and, and I don't know. And I think that um, Pokemon Go is doing a really good job in recognizing how COVID is impacting. So remote raids and not different things like that. So. I feel like the, uh, I'm totally outing myself as a Pokemon Go person here, um, but uh, I do feel like they've done a real, like, that's a great example yeah. of a game that has, and a service that has a totally adapted yeah. um, to the times. Like, it's really cool to see how they've done that. Mm. Yep. Good, yeah, good pre, lessons there. Very much so. Pre-COVID, I used to um, walk outside my office and just take a walk around and I, I might do a raid and I'm, I'm literally hanging with a residential student yeah. and looking at me. I'm all dressed up all nice. I'm looking at them. They, you know, they're in their, their college gear and it, it's a great way to just break the ice when all of a sudden we're just talking about, did you catch it? <laughs> Can I share a story? Huh? Can I share a story? Because it's, it's an awesome one. Nope. Uh, so one day, like I was, you know, of course I'm in my suit and I was playing Pokemon with, with students, and then my vice chancellor was walking, in, and my students were like, oh, are you in trouble? And then actually my vice chancellor reacted differently, which is, and she tells me this, goes, Joe, I'm glad you're playing Pokemon Go, because you get to see the campus as how students see it. And so I get, you know, in addition to like 15 minute walk, you know, you do this 15 minute walk in the morning, 15 minute walk in the afternoon, I actually get to see the campus beyond my office. And so she's like, I'm glad you're doing that. I'm glad that you're engaging with students. So, you know, I have a vice chancellor. It's pretty cool. Vice chancellor Clavoon. And, and she even says like, you know, if you're not engaging online, you're missing half the conversation. 
<laughs> That's awesome, Joe. You definitely have to tag your vice chancellor now and say, you gotta listen, you gotta shout out on this, this, pod, uh, this podcast, webcast. So let's wrap up. Um, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. And so from a tra uh, technology transformation or leadership perspective, what are you pondering, questioning? What are you excited about or what's troubling you? And if we can take, uh, if you can take 60 to 90 seconds to wrap up your thoughts, that'd be great. Uh, let's start with Joe. Oh yeah, I'm thinking about a lot of things, <laughs> especially now. That, that's why I love being part of these these panels because I love you know I, I, I learn a lot from colleagues. Um, I'm thinking about how do we be more equi equitable? You know, talking about accessibility, universal design. How do we transform the way we perform our work? How do we provide service to students? How can we simultaneously, simultaneously scale our services while providing personalized you know uh, services to to meet the unique experiences of our students? Uh, I'm thinking about what is the work of the future, not just the future of work. Um, what's the future of student affairs I want to see? That's a big thing on my mind. And then how can we create inclusive space for conversations? And I think that's been a big part is how do we engage our students? And I, I think I'll, I'll own it. I, think, I don't think we're doing enough, good enough, uh, you know, effort to engage our students. Um, and then I'm thinking about this idea of uh, location, you know, like this location elasticity. And this is a, this is a term that our vice chancellor, um, uh, chancellor for Berkeley used recently. It's like we're so dependent on 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 going to places, you know, professional development, learning, teaching, and so how do we engage in loca locations for elasticity? And the last piece was like thinking about, especially in the world of you know the world of politics now, like how do we transform our our mission, you know, and and of the university and and simultaneously. What is our role in, in, in meeting those student success? And what does, what does student success mean like now for students? Sarah. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how institutions continue tackling uh, similarly issues of diverse, diversity, equity, and inclusion in our current environment, but also how it will transcend the current situation when uh, we one day go back on campus. So yeah. hopefully this is not just for the time being. I'm also really excited um, to be part of conversations like this one because for the first time in history, really, we are all facing the same uh, challenges. And so it's uh, refreshing in a way to see that we are facing the same uh, issues and that maybe there's an opportunity for cross institutional conversations that haven't happened before. So. Um, you know, thank you, Glenn, for organizing this, but I'm hoping that this is also the model for further conversations in the future. As I'm listening to this, I'm, I completely agree with what you're saying. It is uh, definitely impacting all of us. And Kristen, why don't you wrap us up? Um, yeah, great. I, a lot of uh, both what Joe and Sarah said are things that are on my mind. Um, you know, the virtual programming and digital engagement of our students, I think, is going to continue to be really important and that it can't just be a live streamed uh, in-person event um, so that we really have to adjust and learn how to program online. Um, I'm also really, really concerned about the stress and mental health that our current situation is putting on university staff um, and faculty. Um, from somebody who does a lot of advocacy around mental health for higher ed professionals, like that has been top of my mind for a while now. Um, we're looking at a spring with no spring break. Um, and um, how do we, you know, if we're going to be programming for students all semester long, how, where do we get to take a break? Where do we get to have that time to do the work where that's not, you know, in-person student work? I have some real concerns there. And I, and I think it's also 
a little bit different for student affairs even than other um, higher ed staff because student affairs the services we provide to students are often in person and if we have students on campus we want our student affairs staff on campus well that's all great and well but like what about you know all these other folks that are also supposed to be supporting the campus but have the opportunity to stay home so i think there's some um going to be a, a little bit of discord there on campuses and then finally um kind of what what uh, Sarah was saying, which is that I feel like we've learned some really valuable lessons and I hope we don't just go back to um, work as usual, but I hope that we really take some of the things that worked well for us during this time and continue to implement those going forward. I'm really hoping that we see things like more flexible working arrangements and teleworking and things like that that really open up um, the possibilities for other people to um, do these sorts of jobs and also just to have better, um, you know, like I said, mental health, that's my big thing, to have better mental health and better balance. Thank you. And I want to actually thank all of you on this panel for taking time today to be on this episode of Student Affairs Now. So Joe Sabado from the University of California, Santa Barbara, Kristen Ebel from Virginia Tech University, and Sarah Greter from Michigan State University. Thank you so much. Um, if you're interested in contacting any of our panelists, please go to our website to get their social media account. And while you're there, as a reminder, um, please subscribe to our Student Affairs Now newsletter. You can visit us at studentaffairsnow.com. Please check out our archives um, as well. We are, our episode list is growing and it's wonderful to see the variety of topics that are emerging. Um, please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe, share us on social, and leave us a five-star review. So please definitely look for us, retweet us, share, like us. Um, our community is definitely growing. Again, I want to thank our sponsor, Stylist Publishing, for joining um, our team and, um, and just being a sponsor of our uh, Student Affairs Now podcast. So if you have any other topics, please reach out, let me know. Again, my name is Glenn DeGuzman. Thanks again to today's guest and to everyone who is watching and listening. Please take care. See you next time. Goodbye.